All right. Um, I just have to make this joke. You all, you all heard what Tom said earlier. I say amen. I'm done. I'm just kidding. Uh, how wonderful is it, though, that we can um, hear the wisdom of someone who has been uh, in the faith for such a long time, and now you get the flip side of that, and you get to hear the training and growing of a young um, person in ministry. So um, for those who don't know me, hi, I'm Dan. Um, I'm doing a ministry apprenticeship, um, just about finished, actually, um, over at Maruka Presbyterian Church. Um, I'm here because I'm Peter's son-in-law. Um, but he hasn't actually thrown me in the deep end. He knew that I was preaching this morning, and so you're just getting a full recycle of that sermon. Um, I have no idea what Peter was going to preach. I don't know if you're in the middle of a series, but because he's sick, this is what we get. But we know that all of God's word is good for teaching uh, and growing and encouragement, and so that's what we're going to do this afternoon. As we get started, let me just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is good. We thank you that your word is given to us that we can know you, that we can be uh, encouraged in our faith, and that we can hear of the Lord Jesus. Lord, please open our hearts and minds to be able to understand and to learn and to love you more and to serve you better. Amen. Christmas is just about here. If you couldn't tell, check the temperature. Christmas is just about here. Uh, summer in Australia, it is melting hot. Um, but also there's other signs as well. Christmas carols are ringing out in the shopping centers, also in the mail. Uh, I've got Christmas cards coming in the mail now um, for people who still use snail mail. Um, and uh, it's just a wonderful time of year. You see Christmas spirit coming out everywhere. Uh, and it's great. I love it. Um, however, this morning, this morning, it's not morning anymore. Um, this afternoon, I am going to share a story of Christmas heartbreak. Uh, so I have a prop literally a prop plane. Uh, this plane was a Christmas present that I received from my parents quite a few years ago now. I was fairly young. Um, I dug it out of my dad's uh, closet because he doesn't throw anything away, um, but it's still there. However, I got this present many, many years ago and it was so awesome. I was absolutely stoked to receive this present. It was cutting edge remote control technology, or it was to me anyway, uh, and I was really excited to get out and start flying it as soon as possible. So it was later on Christmas day, dad and I, we took it out to the big field uh, just, just over the road from where we were and uh, minutes later, we trudged home because I crashed the plane and broke the propeller. We put the second spare propeller on it, and I crashed the plane and broke the second propeller. Um, that's the third time I've told that story now, and I tell you, it's still actually, I cringe inside and feel the devastation of having had all of five minutes with that plane um, and breaking that, that gift that I was so excited for and loved so much. Um, I looked inside the box when I dug it out, and there are no less than four broken propellers in there. So we did try again, and we did fail again. Um, and so it was a very fleeting gift that I was uh, enjoying at Christmas time. You may not have experienced that same kind of uh, remote controlled mishap as me, but I'm sure you probably have experienced the way that Christmas joy can be somewhat fleeting. Uh, maybe you had a Christmas lunch go pear-shaped. Uh, maybe you're uh, leading up to Christmas church service, the minister was sick and the slides weren't working properly. I don't know. Um, maybe you've just had um, a stomach ache the day after Christmas because you ate too much food. Um, or maybe the, your family just didn't quite get the gift hints that you were dropping in the lead up to Christmas and you didn't get what you wanted. Um, for some people, there's also Christmases where everything is just not great. For other people, you might have a Christmas where everything's great, but 
A few days later, you're back to work, and Christmas is a distant memory, and it's back to the humdrum life of the nine to five. We all experience this fleetingness of Christmas in different ways and at different times. Uh, Christmas time can feel very fleeting. It's already going to be over in just over a week. However, the very first Christmas was entirely different from that. Aside from the fact that Jesus didn't receive a remote-controlled airplane, um, what happened at the very first Christmas was that Jesus came into the world and something wonderfully not fleeting came. On that first Christmas, what Jesus brought to the world was not fleeting, but rather he brought fullness. Uh, and so this afternoon, we are going to look at how Jesus brings that fullness as the word came into the world to bring grace and truth to bring the fullness of grace and truth into a fleeting world. Uh, so we're going to look at that in three different ways from the passage. God with us, us with God, and at the cross. Uh, as a bit of a roadmap as we go through this, uh, for each of these points, um, we're going to look at what God is like uh, and then what we're like. We're going to see those two things from the Exodus narrative that we heard. It, it does tie in, I promise. Um, and then after that, we're going to look at how Jesus changes things. So we start off looking at God with us. John began verse 14 of chapter 1 by saying that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So we need to quickly get a bit of context around the word because I'm throwing you in the deep end with this passage. At our church, we've been doing a series through John chapter 1. You guys just get this little bit of it. However, verse 1 of John chapter 1 is helpful. So it says in verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus is the word, Jesus was with God, and Jesus also is God. So now that brings us the understanding that when Jesus came to earth to be born as a baby, at that point he became God with us. The word, the author of life, the one through whom all things were created, became a part of his creation, which is what Tom was talking about in his interview. So the Old Testament teaches us a lot about who God is. We want to see who this, God, who this God is that has come into the world to be like us. In the Exodus reading, um, Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai with God. He's meeting with him. And are there folded pieces of paper next to you, Trin? Can you run those up here? And I can finish my sentence. So ooh, now my pages are out of order. I've got, I've got the words on the screen. Let's just read them. So this is what we finished the Exodus reading with. Um, I did actually ask Simon to stop where he stopped. He said, um, Moses said, now show me your glory. That's quite a bold question, if you ask me. Um, but this is God's response as he says it in the next part of the passage. God says to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. God goes on then to explain the game plan to Moses, um, that Moses must hide, in, be hidden in a cave as God passes, and God will cover him so that he can't see God fully because it will kill him. This is as close as Moses gets to seeing God, because as God said, no one can see him and live. God is utterly glorious. And his perfect gloriousness is beyond what we as human beings, feeble and sinful, it's beyond what we can handle. Glory too great for us to see with our eyes. 
The Australian Summer of Cricket officially started this week. Um, I won't ask any of you to give me the update on the score of the test match that's on right now. Um, hopefully we're all paying attention to what's going on um, here, not in the cricket. Uh, I quite enjoy watching test cricket uh, and I called to mind this amusing moment from a test match a number of years ago. This picture up here is a picture of Michael Hussey. Uh, he was on the Australian team for a number of years. Um, in this picture, you can see he's sort of crouching down, looking up, arms in the air. The cricket ball has been smashed way up into the sky and it's under, he's under it, he's going to catch this ball and then you suddenly see the camera is focused on him, he goes into this crouch and he immediately starts doing a crab walk from side to side frantically, putting one arm up, other arm up and if you haven't worked it out yet, the sun is blocking the ball, he's blinded, he has no idea where the ball's gone, he's not going to be able to catch it, he's still going and as he's looking for the ball up here, it plops on the ground a meter behind him to which he hears it fall, immediately just flops like that, grabs it and throws it back. The catch is gone, the wicket is missed. Now they've got to try and get him out another way. It was hilarious and sad at the same time. But what happened there was he was looking at the sun and he was blinded. He lost sight of the cricket ball. I'm sure you have all tried to look at the sun before. They tell us not to, but we all still try it sometime in our lives. Um, the funny thing is they are telling the truth. Looking at the sun in, with our naked eye is not a good idea. It will cause you eye damage. You can't actually do it for any length of time. We can take fleeting glances. We can look you know, just to the side of the sun or wear good quality sunglasses or something like that. But looking at the sun is something we actually can't do with our naked eye. Another thing that we can't look at directly is the glory of the Lord. Brighter than the brightest sunshiny day that's roasting us with a heat wave, we cannot look at the glory of the Lord. It would cost us our very lives. But then we read this incredible verse in verse, in verse 14 of chapter 1. As John testifies and he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So we learn a lot about what God is like in the Old Testament through the way he reveals himself to his people. But in coming to earth as a human, Jesus brought to us the fullness of knowing God. God's great glory is displayed to us in Jesus. It's now able to be seen in Jesus. So if we want to know who God is, our creator and almighty Lord, then we need to get to know Jesus. We need to get to know the word as John refers to him. Jesus came to the world as the invitation for us to do this and as the means for us to do this, so we should take the opportunity to do it. And what better time to do that than in the next few weeks as we celebrate the glorious God of all who came to earth as a baby. Jesus made man to make God known to us in all of his glory. But not only was the fullness of God's glory displayed to us in Jesus, but when the word became flesh, he also brought us the opportunity for a deep and full relationship with God. See, our God is a relational God, which we see again in the John chapter 1 passage we read this morning. Uh, I don't know if I have, oh, actually, no, I don't actually have this one. This, there. If you've got it in your Bible, you can follow along. This is verse 18 of John chapter 1, or you can just listen. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. Just been talking about that. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. 
We believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one. They're distinct from each other, yet also they exist in perfect unity, which tells us that even before God created a single thing, God existed in relationship within himself. It says there in the passage that Jesus was in the closest relationship with the Father. It is at the core of God's being to be in relationship, and he turns that towards his people as he seeks to be in relationship with them. And he does that throughout the history of the Bible by dwelling with them. In verse 14, which I'm going to read multiple times, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. The word for dwelling here is the word tabernacled. Throughout the Old Testament, God dwells with his people in various ways. Um, as we heard in the Exodus reading, that he was meeting with Moses as a pillar of cloud, a cloud, a pillar of cloud, yeah, that's the right word, um, a pillar of cloud, and he also was present with Israel um, through the tabernacle, which was called in the passage the tent of meeting. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, God dwells with his people as a pillar of fire, and later on in the temple in Israel. So there are some pictures there of the different ways that God dwells with his people. But the thing is, though, that each of these dwelling places were temporary. The tabernacle was just a tent. The temple that replaced it got destroyed. Uh, and then they built another temple, and that got destroyed as well. So each of these dwelling places physically were not a permanent dwelling. But beyond that, these dwelling places were never able to be a fully God-dwelling-with-his-people place because of sin. Each of these dwelling places was affected by the separation between God and his people because of sin. We saw the way that God said to Israel, I can't go with you because you're a stiff-necked people. We're going to talk about that some more later. Human frailty and sinfulness cannot exist in the presence of a holy and almighty God. So before Jesus, there was something yet unfulfilled about God's dwelling with his people. But once again, the wonderful thing about Christmas is that God sends Jesus to earth to be born as a baby, and it is the way in which he establishes a fullness of relationship with his people. God's aim in all of this was not just to make himself known in his almighty power so that every knee would bow before him. It's more than that. God's desire is for a deep and full relationship where we can be known to him. God wants to know us. He wants to be in relationship with people. So Jesus came to earth. Jesus dwelt with mankind in a relationship far deeper than any tabernacle or temple or pillar of cloud. Jesus walked and he talked and he taught and healed in God's name and power. He displayed God's glory in full human relationship with sinful mankind. He dwelt with mankind in the deepest and most wonderful relationship between God and man since sin entered the world. Jesus, who is God and is in closest relationship with the Father, came to earth so that we might be able to have a relationship with him. Our restored relationship with God through Jesus is not an in-person relationship for us yet. As Tom said, this is something that they can't put in a shop window at Christmas time. Unlike John, who wrote this gospel, no one here has seen Jesus in person. That's our current present reality. But this is why John writes his gospel. He spent his life telling people who Jesus was. And as he got towards the end of, this, end of his life, he thinks, I need to write this down. He gives his testimony and he writes down other people's testimonies so that those who read it later could come to know and believe in Jesus, God's son, our savior king. So while we don't see Jesus in person right now, instead, 
for now our relationship with God, which we have through Jesus, is lived out in faith and in the Spirit. We live by faith, holding on to the hope and the promise of Jesus, knowing with confidence that one day our faith will become sight. Jesus also promised his followers that he would still be with them even after he ascended into heaven through his spirit. So now, as we trust in Jesus and follow him in faith, we hold on to that promise too, and we know that Jesus is dwelling with us by his spirit in our lives. So we live by faith and we live in the spirit, in relationship with God, by his son, through his spirit, because right now we are children of God in relationship with the God who would have relationship with us. So the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He made God known to us and he made a way for us to be known to God, to have a full relationship with him. And the key to all of this are the two words that come up multiple times in our passage, grace and truth. They are the way in which Jesus brings the fullness of God into the world. So we have grace on one hand and we have truth on the other. I separate these out because there are distinctions in them. First, we have grace, that is compassion and mercy and forgiveness. The world longs for grace. We hear the cry for compassion and for peace. We hear that cry in families, in marriages, in workplaces and in war zones. At Christmas time, everyone loves to talk about making amends, letting bygones be bygones and graciously letting go of the past. We want grace to shape our relationships and lives. At the same time, the world's cry is for truth to prevail. We want justice to be done against wrongdoing. We commend lawfulness and goodness. We want victims to be heard and we want criminals to be justly convicted. We want persecution to stop and we don't want evil to go unpunished. But the problem is we can't hold these two things perfectly together. We want grace, but we also want truth. They're both good and right things. It's right for us to be gracious to people. It's also right for us to seek the truth. Yet in our broken world, we can't hold them together all too often. One has to give way to the other. This is the same all throughout history. Again, as we look back to Moses and Israel in the book of Exodus, in the passage we read, we see how God is gracious to his people time and time again. He said, you're a stiff-necked people. I can't go with you. I might destroy you. But yet, by the end of the passage, God says, I will go with you because he is pouring his grace out on his people. Earlier in Exodus 32, just to give you the, the understanding of their stiff-neckedness, Moses was meeting with God and the people of Israel were waiting in the bottom of the mountain and they got tired of waiting and they gave up. They assumed Moses wasn't coming back and they decided to build a golden calf statue to be their God. They abandoned the God who had saved them from Egypt and turned to something else. When this happens, God is rightfully angry at Israel's rebellion. For God to uphold justice, for God to uphold truth at this point, would result in Israel facing the consequences of their rejection of him. And so that's why God says he will not go with them. They are a stiff-necked people and he might destroy them. Yet he does change his mind and graciously goes with them. He continues to dwell with his people despite their sin. We see his grace in this action. In the chapter after our reading, Exodus 34, God continues in this grace and he gives Israel his law to live by. I don't know if you've ever thought of rules as being gracious, but the law was a gift of grace from God because it was the way in which they could continue to be his people living in the world as his, in relationship with him despite their sin. 
In verse 16 of John chapter 1, this is why John says that Jesus brings grace in place of grace already given. God's law for his people to live by was a gift of grace. Justice would be for God to wipe them out, for rebellion against him as the creator and almighty God. Yet in his grace, he offers them a way forward, living under the law as his people. But at the same time as all of this grace, God is still absolutely perfect and absolutely righteous and truth must be upheld. So the punishment for sin does have to be dealt with. And it's at this point that we can come to the cross, to the moment where we see Jesus' glory on full display as we read in John chapter 1, verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The grace was already given through the law, but it's now wonderfully fulfilled and upheld in the fullness of Jesus and his gift of grace. On the cross, Jesus ultimately upholds the fullness of both grace and truth. He brings the fullness of God's grace to us, offering complete forgiveness for sin and absolute restoration to relationship with God. At the same time, he ensures that the fullness of truth is upheld alongside this grace. For every person who would receive God's free gift of grace through Jesus, Jesus bore the punishment they deserved. He paid, he paid the ultimate price for their sin and gave up his life on the cross to be upholding God's truth. The perfect relationship between father and son in this moment was broken. We heard that Jesus was in the closest relationship with the father, but on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus forsook his relationship with God. He gave it up that he might offer to us a restored relationship between God and us. It's the ultimate justice for sin, the ultimate upholding of God's truth, while at the same time, the ultimate act of redemption, the ultimate display, ultimate display of God's grace. So where does this leave us? As we think about what this means, as we're one week and a bit out from Christmas, it's important to realize that Christmases on Earth are still going to be full of fleeting moments. I still have this remote control airplane. I've brought it here as proof. I could probably buy some more propellers, fix it up again, and give it another go. Based on my track record, it's probably going to break again. Probably won't last very long. I think that's more user error than the plane, though. I could even fix it up over and over and over again. I could use it for the rest of my life as much as I want but at the same time, it will not come with me when I die. In the scheme of eternity, that plane is still entirely fleeting. All the things of this world are, in fact, fleeting. The wonderful things about Christmas, they come and go every year, just fleeting moments. But the hope that we celebrate at Christmas time is for a full and eternal relationship with God. Christmas on Earth, don't get me wrong, can be and is still a wonderful time of year. Don't be glum this Christmas because it's going to disappear quickly. Enjoy it while you've got it. I enjoy every part of Christmas um, and I celebrate it every way that I can because each Christmas we can joyfully recognize that every good thing about Christmas time, however briefly we might enjoy it, is a gracious gift from God. But at the same time, we can go deeper than that. We can go deeper than enjoying Christmas lunch and temporary things of the Christmas season holidays. And we can go deeper and look, at, look beyond the temporary things of the Christmas season and be thankful to God for sending us his son. We can grasp onto the hope that we have through Jesus' life, death, and glorious resurrection 
that he offers us through the fullness of God's glorious grace and truth to the world. So at Christmas time, we celebrate the fullness of God's gift to us, and we look forward to experiencing the final fulfillment of our faith when, it will be in, when we come into the full presence of God and Jesus returns. And we will see Jesus again ourselves in all his glory, and we'll enter into his kingdom in full relationship with God. It will be a deeper joy and a lasting hope, better than any Christmas on earth, and greater wonder in knowing the word who became flesh. That's what we can fix our minds on this Christmas. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world, that he became one of us, that you could be known to us, that we could be, be in relationship with you, and that by your grace you could bring us back to you. Lord, please fix our minds on that this Christmas as we enjoy everything that you give us, every good thing at Christmas time. Please help us to remember the greatest gift that is Jesus that you sent to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.